0: Gracious Lord, oh God, we need you. We have such need of you. Lord, I pray that you would focus our hearts, continue to focus our hearts and minds and all that we are on you this morning. As we open your word, as we hear Uh, what you have to say to us or focus us on you God I pray that you would speak through your word through your servant this morning God would everything that I say be in keeping with uh, with your word and with your will and so Lord we we submit ourselves wholly and completely to you God, to you be all honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Uh, I want you to think back on maybe your week or just in general your life. Have you ever felt uh, this frustration where uh, maybe you are on your way to an appointment or a meeting and uh, you're running a little bit behind and so you're driving on your way to wherever it is you need to get going? and uh, you're like, you know what, I'm running behind, I'm feeling kind of rushed, and all of a sudden, you find yourself behind a slow-moving truck. (laughs) Yeah, right? And the frustration starts to build within you, going like, doesn't he know that I need to get where I'm going? Can't he move just like a little bit faster? I know what the speed limit says, just go a little bit fast, and the frustration starts to build, right? Or maybe uh, you've had this, this long week, and every time you've sat down in the evening, uh, and you just want to relax, and so you turn on Netflix, and this movie pops up under your recommended, and you're like, oh, that looks interesting, but I don't have time tonight, but Friday, Friday night, I have time, uh, it's a long week, and then I get, you know, that's, that's my time, right, I can relax, and then just as you're sitting down to, while well, you've got the popcorn popped, right, and you, you sit down to watch the movie, and your phone rings. And you look at your phone and it's your best friend and you know this is going to be a long conversation and you're not going to get to watch that movie and you know what you're you're happy to talk to your friend but you're a little bit ticked off right because because this is my time and I want to watch this movie or maybe you've had the irritation of having like your whole day planned out right? Busy day. You've got an appointment here. You've got a meeting uh, at two o'clock. You've got this lunchtime uh, coffee set up with somebody. You've got uh, all this, this deep work time set up in the middle of the, or the later afternoon. It's all planned out, but then X, Y, or Z happens, and it all goes out the window. Your whole day's thrown, and that's irritating, isn't it? Like, I, I worked hard to plan this, and I, I, I budgeted my time and I did what I was supposed to do, and I feel irritated. We've all been there, right? I mean, judge by, judging by the, the laughters and the giggles, you know what I'm talking about. These frustrations, these irritations, uh, this, these senses of being upset, angry, because my time has been interrupted. It's been ignored. It's been disregarded. Friends, this these feelings of frustration, they betray a misunderstanding of our ownership over the time that we have, don't they? They, they betray this misunderstanding of, we th- start to think, this is my time. I own my time. But the truth is, is that just like everything else in this world, our time is not our own. Our time is not our own. Over the past few weeks, as been already been mentioned, we've been going through this uh, series on stewardship. Stewardship of our treasures, the things that we th- love and, and value most in this world. Stewardship of our thoughts, considering what it means to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And today we're considering what it means to be stewards of our time. Stewards of our time. This idea of stewardship, it implies the reality that we're not actually the owners, doesn't it? A steward doesn't own what they're stewarding. They're merely managers. It implies that we're not the owners. Stewardship is recognizing that we actually own nothing. It's recognizing that we actually own nothing and loving the God who has given us everything by dealing appropriately with His stuff. With his stuff. Let me say that again. Stewardship is recognizing that we actually own nothing and loving the God who has given us everything by dealing appropriately with what he has given us, with his stuff. That's what it means to be a steward, or more accurately, a good steward. That's what it means to be a good steward. Genesis 1 is super clear. God is the one who made time. He is the one who made time, and as its creator, he's the one who owns it, and he allots it to us to manage. Our time is not our own. Our time is not our own. It belongs to God, and we're given it to steward for his glory, to steward for his glory. But so often we forget this, don't we? We forget this reality. We get caught up in the management to the point where we start to think that the time is actually ours. Right? We get so caught up in the management, we start to think that it's ours to do with what we want. We start to think that it's our resource. This is partly why we have a culture that thinks that individuals have the authority to end their own life whenever they see fit. But friends, we don't have that authority. We don't have that authority because our time actually isn't our own. It's not our own, which is why from very early on, God instituted a system for his people to consistently remind them of his ownership over time so that they had a regular occurrence that, that drew their minds and their reality to the truth that God is the one who owns time and they don't. I'm talking about Sabbath, Sabbath. Sabbath is a structure that was instituted by God to help his people hold on to the reality that God is the Lord of time and not them, not us. Because the truth is, is that when we try to hold on to the ownership of time, it only ever leads to death. Let's sink in for just a second. When we try to hold on to the ownership of time, it only ever leads to death. To death. When we think we're the owners of time, we think that we need to work our tails off to make the most of it, which leads to what we call works righteousness or attempting to earn our own way. Or maybe the other way that we err is that we think that as the owners of our time, then we get to do whatever we want with it and squander it as we see fit. Right, both of these are ditches uh, off of the truth that only ever lead to death. Really, both of them are an ever-looking inward on ourselves, just wholehearted selfishness. But what Sabbath does is it keeps those two dangers, those two paths to destruction, those two ditches in check. But as we consider this, we need to differentiate between two different expressions of Sabbath, that word Sabbath. And the first, and the most obvious, and likely the one that comes to mind most readily when I say the word Sabbath, is the physical expression of Sabbath. The taking of a 24-hour period and ceasing from work, right? If, if you've read through the Old Testament, you've heard, and we're going to read a couple passages here where, where God outlines what uh, outlines what. Sabbath is, and it's this 24-hour period where they cease from doing work. And that's the physical expression of Sabbath that God initiated in Exodus when he called his people to himself. And it was, and in a way uh, is, pardon me, good and right when it's in its proper place, as we're going to see. But it was always intended to point to a greater reality. That physical expression is always intended to point to a greater reality. The physical outworking of Sabbath was never the point in and of itself. It was never the point in and of itself. It's always been and continues to be the pointer to a greater truth realized wholly and completely in Jesus. And more, and more specifically, Jesus as Lord of all things, including time, including time. This is what we call the spiritual reality of, or expression of Sabbath. The soul rest that is found only in a life lived with Jesus. A life lived with Jesus. Now in order to pack, unpack that this morning, what we're going to do, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at two passages uh, from uh, Exodus and then from Deuteronomy, uh, where God has initiated this ritual of Sabbath uh, within uh, the covenantal people of God, the people of Israel. And and then we're going to shift to Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus engages with the Pharisees on this matter, this ritual of Sabbath, and see how he instructs us in this structure. And then finally, we're going to consider what it means and looks like to live this out, okay? So the first passage that we're going to look at is Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. And if you are here this morning, you do not have your own copy of God's Word. We would love uh, to share and and give you the gift of God's Word. And so if that's you, you can feel free to put your hand up. One of our front lines, uh, awesome volunteers would love to give you one. And that's our gift to you. You can keep that. So Exodus chapter 20, specifically looking at verses 8 through 11. And here's what it says. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son God is right in the middle of laying out the Ten Commandments to, uh, his, to Moses so that he can teach them to God's people. And this is commandment number four. And what I want us to notice here in this passage uh, is verse 11, specifically verse 11. So verses 8 through 10 lay out like the ground rules for the Sabbath day that God has initiated here. And then verse 11, we get the motivation we get the motivation, the reason for the devotedness of the seventh day, the reason for the physical expression of Sabbath. And the reason that they are to stop from their work for one particular day is tied back, we see here in verse 11, is tied back to creation, right? To God's creating of the world. That after he, six days of creation, he himself rested, Therefore, they ought to rest. But not only that, also by hearkening back to creation, God is pointing them to the time to come when they would get to dwell once more in perfect unity with their creator. And that's maybe the primary theme in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. One of the primary themes of those first five books of the Bible is that man's fall into sin caused us to be separated from God, but God has actively pursued his people with the purpose of bringing them back to the Garden of Eden so that they can live in God's perfect creation in perfect unity with him. That's the goal. And we see here uh, that Sabbath is meant to be a pointer to that yet unfulfilled reality. That's the purpose that, that Moses here, that God gives to Moses for the Sabbath. That it's this pointer to that reality that God is trying to bring them back to Eden. A reminder that God is working to make things right again. Sabbath here points to glory. It points to Glory. It points to God's creation creation of time at the beginning and his fulfillment of time at the end. Okay, so that's the first passage, Exodus 28 through 11. The second passage is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 11 or uh, 12, sorry, my mistake, 12 through 15. 15. Okay. Starting in verse 12, it says this. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work Now, at this point in time, uh, God's people, the 40 years or so have passed. God's people have wandered in the desert, right? And, and they're about to enter into the promised land. And before they do, Moses recaps all of what God had taught them and done for them. And he's recapping the Ten Commandments here. And this recap of the fourth commandment is very similar, right? I'm sure it stood out to you like, hey, I think we've heard these words written before. A couple tweaks here or there for the most part, uh, Until it gets to the motivation. There's one very distinct variation from Exodus to Deuteronomy. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. When he gives the motivation here, he doesn't tie it back to creation, does he? No, he ties it back to the Exodus. Now we need to remember, what we need to remember is that the Exodus is Israel's key salvation event before Jesus comes. It's the key event that up until Jesus comes into the world, God calls back and says, remember how I saved you from slavery in Egypt and brought you into freedom that's found only in your worship of me. That's what God did through the Exodus. It's their salvation event. And God did all of the work. We read about that in the book of Exodus. And so we see through this telling of the fourth commandment here that it's not only a pointer to glory, though that is not negated, it is still indeed a pointer to glory, Sabbath that is, the physical expression of Sabbath. It is also a reminder of salvation given by God. So it's a pointer to glory and it's a reminder of salvation given by God. Salvation that leads to wholehearted devotion to the one who saves devotion in all things, in all places, and at all time. So this is the picture that Sabbath paints, right? A pointer to glory and a reminder of salvation given by God. So from that point, about 1,500 years pass, okay? 1,500 years pass. And what we see through the Old Testament is is that even as God's people ebb and flow in their devotion to him and their commitment to his ways, God's rule and authority over time doesn't cease. It remains. And in that, his love and his care for his people remains. But along the way, the people lose their vision of God's picture of Sabbath. They lose the vision of what God had intended for it. And so when the Pharisees accuse Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath, Jesus takes the opportunity to correct their understanding. And we see this account in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, you can go ahead and turn there uh, in your own copy of God's word. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And as you do that, I'm going to offer just a little bit of context. Our passage here uh, in chapter 12 immediately follows uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 and 30, which uh, is Jesus, uh, it's the passage where Jesus says, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in those words, he redefines what rest really is. He does not speak of it simply as the absence of work, but rather he declares that true rest is found only in him and only in a wholehearted devotion to him. So it's not a coincidence that immediately off the tails of this redefinition of rest that Matthew would come into Jesus interacting with the Pharisees on the Sabbath. OK? So that's where we find your, ourselves this morning, uh, and I'll invite you to stand with me now for the reading, if you're able, for the public reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 12 verses one through eight we're going to be looking at. Hear the Word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy mercy, and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God, you may have a seat. What we see here from Jesus is that there is so much more to the Sabbath than the the ritual, than the physical outworking. Just like we've already talked about from Exodus and Deuteronomy. Remember I said Jesus is trying to refocus them back onto the original meaning. And so he's, he's diving into this reality that there was so much more to the Sabbath than the ritual. It's clear that the Pharisees have lost sight of this reality and they've actually made it about themselves. The very thing Sabbath was supposed to correct against they've made it. The very thing that Sabbath was intended to keep at bay, that's what they have made it. That's what they've made it. Jesus calls them and us to renew our vision of Sabbath back to its intended purpose as the counter to thinking that we are the owners of our own time. And so let's let's walk through what happens here. Let's walk through what happens here. Verse 1 and 2, shows Jesus and his disciples walking through a field on the Sabbath. The, pardon me, there was specific, like they, the Pharisees had set up all of these rules that had been passed down over time, and there was a specific distance they were allowed to walk, and there was certain things they weren't allowed to do and things they were allowed to do, but they're walking uh, on the Sabbath through this grain field. And apparently, they're doing so under the very keen, watchful eye of the Pharisees. And as they're walking, they grab some heads of grain just as they're walking along and they pick out the seeds and they eat them. And the Pharisees, to the Pharisees who are ever watchful, this is the perfect gotcha moment for them. In fact, sometimes in this, in this case, we almost see the Pharisees kind of acting like, like the paparazzi do with a lot of the, uh, the celebrities of our time. Like, I don't know, but I can almost see the Pharisees, like, kind of hiding in the bushes, like, by the grain field as the disciples. They're, they're kind of following them around. They know where they're going to be. They've got their itinerary from their sources. And so they, they get there ahead of time, and they're, they're sitting in the bushes, and they're watching. Right? Oh, there they come. There they come. Oh, I bet you they're going to eat the grain. We'll, we'll get them then. Click, 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 click. Right? And then and then we got them. And then, you know, the uh, the, the cover of the Jerusalem Inquirer the next day has the the headline, <laughs> Rabbi's Radicals. Jesus' disciples reap what they've sown. Right? They almost are treating them like they're, they're looking for this gotcha moment. And so they call them out on it. They take their picking of these grains, these heads, uh, to be reaping. They say, and they're walking along, you're reaping your uh, the grain. And then they uh, the other, one of the other gospels talks about how they, they rub them in their hands to get the seeds out. And, and they said, that's threshing, which are two very specific jobs that we're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. When in reality, what they've done is akin to walking through the forest and picking some wild raspberries on their way. But interestingly, Jesus does, uh, sees what's really at play here. He sees what's really at play. Notice he doesn't hit back at them telling them, don't be ridiculous. My disciples haven't broken the law. He doesn't say that. He doesn't try and call them out for doing something of equivalent value, right? No, he, he sees that their whole vision of the Sabbath is skewed. And he goes after that specifically. And in his response, we see two illustrations and three principles. First, the two illustrations. In verses 3 and 4, we see David and the forbidden showbread... And in verse 5, we see the priestly profanity of the Sabbath. David and the forbidden showbread and the priestly profanity of the Sabbath. Verses 3 to 5 give us that context. Let me read them here again for us. He said to them, this is Jesus saying, it's his response to what the Pharisees have said. Have you not read that David, what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? See, both of these illustrations are meant to poke holes in the, the Pharisees' faulty hierarchy. What I mean is that the Pharisees, just like we so often do, put ultimate importance on the ritual and on working their way into God's good grace. In other words, the Pharisees were betraying a belief that they owned their time, right? Just like we so often do. And both of these illustrations are meant to showcase instances where people ostensibly broke the law in ways that were far graver than what his disciples apparently just had, what they were accused of. But in both cases, the supposed perpetrators are found not guilty, Why? Because something greater than the ritual is at play. Something greater than the law that is supposedly broken is at play. In it all, God is orchestrating things for his own purposes because he is the one who's in control. Interestingly, we also see in these two illustrations, we get a glimpse into the outworking of what Jesus called the greatest uh, commandment and the second, which is like it, right? The greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we see that in the priests working tirelessly while those around them are all stopped from their work to serve and honor God in the temple. And the second is like it, Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we see this played out in the account of David being given the showbread by the priests who wanted to show love to the one who had been anointed king. So we had our two illustrations. And then we have three principles that Jesus, pardon me, that Jesus brings out. So two illustrations, three principles. Look at verse six. Verse six. He said to them, Oh, sorry, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The first principle that Jesus highlights about the Sabbath is this the presence of God is not found in the ritual, it's found in Jesus. The presence of God is not actually found in the physical outworking of Sabbath or in any other ritual. It's found in the person of Jesus. Jesus is saying here that God's favor, his presence is not truly found in the ritual at all. It's found in him. There was a time when God's people found God's presence in the temple. There was. That time had passed and God was now present through Christ. And that was far greater than What they could, and and what they get from Christ being in the physical presence was far greater than what they ever could experience before. What that means is that time is not made holy, time is not made holy because of what we're doing. Our time that we spend is not made sacred, it's not made devoted to God, it's not made uh, holy because of what we're doing. It's made sacred by the fact that it is given to us by God and in space and time is where we encounter Jesus. It's where we encounter Jesus. That means that how we act and think on Sunday morning, where we're here in this building, ought not to be any different than how we act and we think during a Monday morning meeting or during a Saturday hockey game, or during Wednesday night bath time. Each of these are moments in time where we're given the opportunity to experience Jesus. Every moment that we live our lives is a moment in space and time where we have the immense opportunity to experience Jesus. Just sit in that for just a second. Because God's given us that second. That we can sit in it and recognize the reality that we get to experience Jesus. The second principle that Jesus highlights about Sabbath is in verse seven. Verse seven, it says this. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. In our house, we try, we're not perfect at it, but we try uh, to stress that obedience to mom and dad means more than just doing what we've told you to do. What I mean is that obedience is a wholehearted action. So if mom tells a child to go and fold their laundry, and the child goes and the laundry gets folded and put away, but the entire time that child is stomping around their room and they're slamming drawers and they're very clearly not obeying in their heart, then there's a problem there. That's not true obedience, right? Because the heart is not obeying. See, when we obey, our heart ought to be in alignment with our actions, This is the idea that Jesus is trying to get across in this second principle here. He's saying that there is more to following God than mere ceremonial literalness. Okay, there's more to following God than just doing the right actions. Right, God constantly through the Old Testament is at pains to try and get this point into the heads and the hearts of his people. It's not just about doing the right things. Your heart needs to be in it too. Your heart needs to be in it too. This means that we can do all of the right stuff outwardly. You know, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. We can do all the right stuff properly. While wholly and completely missing the point. While wholly and completely missing the point. See, we honor God with our time, with the time that He has given us by being right with Him. By being right with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we honor God with our time, by being right with Him through faith. In Jesus Christ. And from this place, we can turn our time into love for God and love for others when we're right with Him. So God's presence is not found in ritual, but in Jesus. There is more to following God than in ceremonial literalness. And finally, Jesus is Lord of all things, including the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of all things, including the Sabbath. Look at verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The, the term Son of Man is used throughout uh, Jesus' ministry to show his readers, who were primarily, in Matthew's case, Jews, uh, that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. He was, it was a name that Jesus used of himself many times, and it would have been cle- a clear indicator that he was calling himself the savior that they had been waiting for. And what Jesus is saying here is that Sabbath, just like every other Old Testament ritual, is meant to point to a life lived with him. It's meant to point to a life lived with and for Jesus. And so to summarize those three principles, okay, to summarize those, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus because the truth is we will never be able to maximize our time. We will never be able to find true rest. We will never be able to live a life worth anything if it's not all about Jesus. If it's not all about Jesus. Friends, he is the sweetest, fullest, greatest, most awesome one we can know. And we can do nothing without him. We can do nothing without him. It is all about Jesus. And Sabbath, as defined by Jesus, keeps our eyes on him. It keeps our eyes on him, reminding us that he is the one who has given us the time that we have, and so we need to walk with him in the midst of it. So that every moment becomes an opportunity for us to experience Jesus. Now, what does this look like? What does this look like? Sabbath fixes our eyes on Jesus by reminding us of our salvation and by pointing us to glory. Sabbath fixes our eyes on Jesus by reminding us of our salvation and pointing us to glory. But just to remind us, This is a holistic view of Sabbath, right? Not just the physical expression, but the spiritual reality. We walk in Sabbath rest seven days a week when we're walking with Jesus. We walk in Sabbath rest seven days a week when we're walking with Jesus. But let's look at these two parts and how they play out day to day. First, it reminds us of our salvation. Friends, we cannot work to save ourselves. We can't do it. Remember at the beginning, I said that when we try to earn our favor with God, it betrays a belief that we own our own time, right? But scripture is clear. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing that we can do for it. We need Jesus. So if you're here today and you're working tirelessly to earn your way in this world, then you need to hear me. You need only to come to Jesus. You need only to come to Jesus and he will save you. He alone. The path of I'll do my best only leads to death. It only leads to death. Jesus says, I've done it for you. So walk with me. So walk with me. Further to this point, we need to remember that even once we have come to him, and we are walking with him, our time cannot be spent working to keep ourselves in his good grace. Right? When the, when the point of what we're doing becomes trying to earn and keep ourselves in God's grace, we lose sight of the fact that he's the one who's done it all to begin with. Right? It was only Jesus who washed us clean, and it's only Jesus that can keep us clean. And so when we live in light of God's ownership of our time, it shifts the question from how can I make the most of every moment to how can I walk with Jesus in the midst of this moment? Hear the difference there? From I need to work hard so that I can squeeze everything out of these seconds because it's truly up to me to make that happen to Jesus, how can I walk with you in the midst of each and every moment? The way that plays out might look identical outwardly, but it means life or death inwardly. And as we do that, in light of the reality that he is the one who is leading and working, we live out love for God and love for those around us, be it at church or stuck in traffic, or taking time to rest in all things and at all times we walk with Jesus because he, he is the owner of our time. And so living in light of Sabbath reminds us of our salvation. And second, living in holistic Sabbath rest, in holistic Sabbath rest fixes our eyes on Jesus by pointing us to glory. See, when we rest in Christ, we look forward to a time when our whole existence is rest. Our whole existence is rest. Let me clarify something. Because often I think that when we say the word rest, what we mean is the absence of work. So if I'm not working, then by definition, I must be resting. But that's actually not true. That's not true rest. There are certainly times when we need to cease from work, but that's not it in and of itself. Uh, To demonstrate this, let me quote a song by Canadian rock band, Spirit of the West. I do not recommend this song to you, uh, but I had heard it and it came to mind. So let me read you the, uh, the opening lyrics to this song. They say, you'll have to excuse me. I'm not at my best. I've been gone for a month. I've been drunk since I left. These so-called vacations will soon be my death. I'm so sick from the drink. I need home for a rest. You ever felt that? Maybe not. Maybe some of you, not the drunk portion. But you know the feeling of, man, I was supposed to be resting, but I'm coming off of that just feeling way more burnt out than ever before. You know that feeling? Maybe for you that was scrolling endlessly through a feed after feed, and then you come out of that and you're like, well, that wasn't restful. Or maybe that was binge watching whatever series you happen to be on right now because you just need to check out for a little while and then you come wake up the next morning and, and I'm so much more tired than I was. Or maybe you're here tonight and, and you're you know what? Yeah, I have been getting drunk or getting high because I just needed to check out from this world for just a minute. But when I come back, no more rested. See, rest in God's economy is about so much more than just ceasing from work. It's about trusting in Christ for all things, for all things, and walking with Him knowing that He has accomplished it all. He's accomplished it all. Let me leave you with two things. First, live each moment, live each moment in light of who you are in Christ. Live each moment in light of who you are in Christ, because He is the one who has given you every second. And so live it for him and with him. And second, one tangible way to help drive this home is through practicing a physical expression of Sabbath done in the right way and in the right heart. As long as we remember that it's never the point in and of itself. Practicing a 24-hour Sabbath day is never gonna be the point in and of itself. It always needs to point us to Jesus. And if this is something that you think that this is a spiritual discipline that you wanna put in your life, because you want that reminder, because that's what the spiritual disciplines are, they're pointers, reminders to Jesus, of Jesus and to Jesus. That I'll, a few things to keep in mind, three things to keep in mind. One, you need to plan for it. You need to plan for it, because taking 24 hours of Sabbath time is very countercultural. And uh, it'll be very hard. So you need to plan for it, and you need to guard that time. And number two, you need to prioritize how you're going to spend that time. It actually is going to take not only planning to, uh, to put the time in place, but actually what you're going to do in that time. Remember, rest isn't just the cessation of work. There's something that goes into this. Prioritize how you'll spend your time. I have found that a helpful paradigm for, for Sabbath time is feasting, feasting, rest, worship, and play. And if you live those out, they point us to Jesus and our salvation and glory. Feasting, rest, worship, play. And third, keep your focus on Jesus. Keep your focus on Jesus. Like with all good things, Satan tries to twist them. And just like the the Pharisees had so clearly done, we end up shifting what was a good God-honoring thing and we put it to one ditch or to the other, whether that's I just ignore and I just do whatever I want or uh, I end up just working through it. Either way, Satan wants to twist it. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. I'm gonna invite the band and come back out. We're gonna close our service with a final song. And this song is intended to be a reminder that every breath, every breath that we take, every breath that we take has been given to us by God. So we ought to use each one to pour out our praises to Him. So do something with me here. Before, just before we pray and before the band starts playing, we're going to take a couple breaths together, okay? Take a deep breath in. One more. Feel that breath hit your lungs? It's given to you by God. So use it to pour out your praises to him. Let's pray. Gracious God. God, we have such need of you. You've given us everything. From every breath, to every second, to every Thing that we can see, feel, touch, hear, taste, all of it is given to us by you. So help us. Help us to see you. Help us to to lean into who Jesus is and the salvation that he offers and walk with him in every moment. Because Lord, indeed, it is your breath that is in our lungs. So we pour out our praises to you. For God's the glory of the Father, the name of the Spirit, of the Son, the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen and amen.